G'day and welcome to Sheep Bench in 2023. We're down here on Gundamara country and today as part of a little collaboration we're doing with elders, we're sitting down in their stand which is pretty jam-packed actually. Any, any more people and they'd be going straight out the side of the marquee. We're sitting down to chat about the evolution of agriculture and we thought it'd be awesome to sit down with a couple of people, one being a local, Mark Gubbins, who I've known for quite some time, who in his family business they've evolved several times, changing enterprises from his grandparents through to his father, through to him, and now obviously as the business continues to evolve with his two sons in it. The other person who we're sitting down with is Brendan Rinaldi, who's the State General Manager for Victoria and the Riverina with Elders. And Brendan's got a really interesting story because he's not only had a career in finance and banking, as well as in consulting and accounting, he's also co-owning a family farm as well. So he's juggling a couple of things and his evolution in agriculture is super fascinating as well, where it's come from a variety of different angles and actually seeing him being involved in areas that he's passionate about, but not actually necessarily in the things that happen day to day on the family farm. So let's jump into it. We will might have a few little sound tweaks in here, but bear with us and I hope you enjoy the chat. We'd love to know any feedback you've got on this live panel. Righto. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me great pleasure, firstly, to welcome you all into the Elders' Tent for Sheepvention 2023. It's great that we've got such a good crowd here today. It's been a wonderful day. I think everyone's enjoyed the traditional Sheepvention weather like this. It's magnificent, bit of sun and no wind and everyone's enjoyed it. You're not here to listen to me though. I'm going to do my best to hand over to Ollie Laleve straight away. We've got some wonderful guests and uh, I hope you all enjoy the afternoon and uh, please stick around afterwards for a drink and whatever's left of the Arvo tea at the back there. So enjoy. Thanks, Lockie. Thanks, Elders, for having us here. And thanks, Mark and Brendan, for joining us for a bit of a chat. For those of you who aren't familiar, I'm Ollie Laleve. I've been running a podcast and a media platform in agriculture. We've been running a platform, really trying to shift the stigma around agriculture through sharing people's stories. And today, we deliberately chose the topic evolving in agriculture. And I think when we talk about evolution, different words such as succession and whatnot might come out. And I think at, at various stages, when it comes to evolving within agriculture, within businesses, there's plenty of decisions that are made. And I know, Brendan, you've made several over your career, both inside the farm gate and outside. And just for the audience, can you tell us a little bit of your background? Where did you grow up and what's your earliest memory around agriculture? Uh, probably cutting burrs at about four years old. It was a, certainly a family thing where I grew up of the youngest of four kids and Obviously, growing up on a sheep farm, never wanted any burrs in the wool, so everyone got a shovel from a very young age, so I remember, and we used to bag them up so the seeds wouldn't fall, so that's probably my youngest memory of being on the farm. And what about for you, Mark? Your home's not too far from here. What's your earliest memory? Oh, my earliest memory, we grew up in a Coradale stud, and probably one of my earliest fear memories of agriculture was at an age of 12 to 14, holding 60 kilo rams when we were half the weight for my grandfather and uh, my father to open the wool and say how pretty and we've been bumped into rails and, and bashed about by these big rams. But that's one of my memories. Was it at this moment that you loved farming? Uh, sometime during my life I got to the stage that I could have been called a sheep hater. Maybe that was it. <laughs> about <laughs> the same time you started going down the cattle route? No, I stayed with sheep for a fair while actually. I mean, they were very good to us for some years, but then the wool boom changed that as Corridales were sort of not one of the breeds to have through that. And then our sheep evolved elsewhere and I looked more at cattle and enjoyed the genetics of cattle and took that ride. We were chatting before and I guess I've been fortunate to be involved with Mark in a, in a couple of different roles. You were a director of a company that I was working a few years ago, but the decision for you back in the 80s to come back on the farm, was it in your hands, you felt? I think probably a lot of my contemporaries and myself 
there was an expectation if you were born into a farm that you, as being a male, you would come back to farming. And that certainly happened to my brother and I, I think. There was positions made and places made for us to come back. So there wasn't a lot of talk about alternatives. We could have taken those, but we probably had to fight the family wish. At one stage, I became quite good with computers and could have left and walked down the programming road. But farming had an attraction to me. I had a, a young family and bringing them on a farm is a great place to be. So farming evolved and then took me to where we are today, which has been a great ride. And what about for you, Brendan? Because today, obviously involved with elders, I should have given you a bit more of a proper introduction. You've been in the role for several months now, General Manager of Victoria and the Riverina. Why did you decide to go down that corporate path and what were the options to you? Yeah, like I said, I was the youngest of four. I had two older sisters and a, and a brother. Dad, so we're fifth generation farming family. Dad was a shearer as well as working on the family farm. Dad never taught my brother or, or myself to shear because everyone he taught went off shearing, didn't want that for his boys. But uh, I guess my older brother was probably always destined to go back to the farm. He hated school and I guess I was a bit more of the academic. So once my brother went back to the farm, I was more pushed down the uni path. And, and to be honest, I probably didn't have anything to do with the, the family farm for a good 10 years once I went off to university in the corporate world. So I started at PwC as an accountant and then caught a mentor and then found myself at, at ANZ and I walked in the doors at ANZ and they said, you're off the... I just got back in touch with my dad and, and my brother and I had a national agribusiness role with ANZ dealing with farmers that were actually in financial difficulty. So that took me, yeah, around the country and I guess as I was building my expertise in agribusiness, I started to give dad a bit of advice and I said to dad one day, oh, you should buy this block of land across the road. It had been on the market, it didn't sell, but we knew the agent and dad said, oh, I don't, you know, I've, I've got enough on my plate, I don't want to buy it and I kept pushing him and pushing him. He said, well, if you think it's that good of, good of an idea, buy it yourself. So I did and then I leased it back to him so I made him pay for it anyway. But anyway, that's I, I sort of call myself a bit of an accidental farmer so I got it, sort of got back into the family farm involvement there and my brother runs the farm today and I sort of do a bit of the bookwork and, and things like that, keep an eye on the economic side which certainly helps, helped me both in the banking side but then obviously helped me grow a passion towards agriculture. I had a number of different sort of agribusiness roles within the bank and then developed a relationship with some of the key people and elders and when this job came up, I jumped at it because... You know, it's an amazing business. It's got lots of various business streams. It's obviously got a great history. Elders have been around since 1839. It's a brand that a lot of us have grown up with. So yeah, I just it was a bit of a, a natural thing for me, I guess. Like the old saying, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. And you sort of end up back similar to Mark's story, I suppose. You end up, you funnily enough, end up back where you come from a lot of the time. So yeah. So you say an accidental farmer, accidentally in agriculture. So like, was it planned for you or like was it somewhere with like the calling to come back into agriculture was it something that was sitting there or did you did it just literally come out when that property came up and your old man said go and have a crack and it was probably that was the first first part and then the second part was a bit bit of I guess a bit more advice I gave to my dad again and he said I'm getting too old for this if you think it's that good of an I talk to your brother and you guys can go into business together so it genuinely was it, I guess I yeah it's genuine that I that I did become a, yeah it was a bit of an accident at the start but it's something that I love and you know, I do live in Melbourne now, but having the best of both worlds, and I've got three young kids, two boys and a girl, and they absolutely love the farm, and to get back there and see them on the motorbikes and doing sheep work, and, you know, my oldest is nine, and he, he hates school and just wants to be on the farm the whole time, so I get a lot of joy out of that. So the farm's very precious to me, and we spoke about legacy before, and, you know, it's fifth generation farming, and seeing the sixth generation come up, it is a legacy, and, and you do want to continue to build on something that's there for the next generation, and I think that's the beauty of it. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Mark, for you, your business, can you just run us through a little bit about 
what Kalana's like today, who's involved, but also to what that's looked like through your father and and also your grandfather and how the actual enterprises have changed as well. Yeah, good question, Ollie. Look, I'll probably go back to my grandfather bought Kalana in 1930. He was the middle the middle brother of three brothers and they came from Birigara and split out and all went farming in their own way. And you know the you'll know of the Tamania Govans, that's one of those brothers. And then the Bowen Heads is full of plumbers and builders and surfies and things like that. That's another arm of, of our family. And uh, they were farming as well back in those days. So my grandfather came to Kalana in 1930. Interesting little bit of history. It had been, it had been on the market for some period of time, 3,000 acres. In those days, deemed unviable and overrun by rabbits. And you think of that 3,000 acres, back then deemed unviable, and you get to after the war or just post-war, whereas a soldier settlement block deemed viable was 640 acres. Interesting little thing, but phalaris and superphosphate and clovers and things changed farming. But to get back to the modern day of how it's changed, I mean, I was brought up in a sheep stud, and that's what my family did, and they were very good at that, but farming evolved and changed because the wool boom actually changed the side of the wool industry, and those coarse wools were just not wanted. So that changed that. We got to the stage we tried to sell half the corridor. We, we sold half the corridor stud somewhere in the early 90s, I think, and kept half thinking we'll try and persevere. In the end, we couldn't even sell the second half. We just dissolved it back into a commercial into a commercial operation, and that's what it got to it. And that's part of the evolution of farming. And about that time, or maybe late 80s, I started to – we had a small cattle stud selling about 20 bulls, if that, at the time, and uh, I started to see something in that. We were starting to sell to a few Hereford breeders and the game was changing a fair bit and evolution took place there. I mean, my whole cattle career effectively in its early days was changing red cattle to black cattle and that's what happened. That's evolution. That's part of the deal. So we kept that going for some years, Anna and I, and ended up with a black Simmental stud on top of the Angus stud and then just near the end of our of our stud life, we ended up with a Wagyu stud as well because we were starting to lose some bull breeders, heifer breeders to Wagyu. So we thought, let's tap into that. And so that gets into the into the mid-2015-16. We'd been doing some succession talks with our children, two boys, and we sat down and had quite a big meeting about who's going to do what and when, who's going to do something in five years, 10 years, 20 years, and about what we had then. And there was not a lot of hands going up to run the stud in the future. So we took the view of dispersal. And uh, so we dispersed the Angus stud and the Black Simi stud. Kept the Wagyu stud for a couple of years and thought that was great for heifer calving, but they grew too slowly for us. We thought a cow was better than a, than a, a Wagyu calf standing around. And we get to where we are today with farms in South Australia and Victoria and two boys farming with us. So I want to ask you on... like. You've spent a lot of blood, sweat, tears, emotionally invested chasing both markets, but you love the cattle stud, I, I presume. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it took me to the States a dozen times probably, chasing genetics. I met a lot of people worldwide. I, um, I've had a lot of pleasure out of it. But, you know, we really looked at what our family wanted down the track. And I have this view, a long-held view, that if you want a family farm, you have to let the family farm. Was that something you picked up? Outside the farm gate, or where'd that come from? I don't actually know where that first started. I did a talk after I dispersed and used that for the first time. I think it's just something that I've thought about for a long time. That, uh, you know, you see lots of farms that don't go very well through succession and lifetimes, and, and you look at them and you wonder why. And we all learn from that. All of us individually learn from that. And I think that was just my view that 
I've got two boys. I'd love them to farm. I'm not going to make them farm. But if they wanted to, that'd be fantastic. So that's where if you want them to farm or if you want a family farm, let them farm and let them farm the way they want. I think we might come back and tap on that a little bit. For you, Brendan, you've spent a lot of time working outside the farm gate and looking at things, I guess, in a corporate business sense of how structures, how decisions are made, what time horizons things are looked at. How do you bring that learning back into the family conversations with what you were doing with actually just leasing the farm back, but then actually how that's evolved to where you're at today? Yeah, I guess that's the benefit of being, I guess, in consulting and then banking. Just had a lot of different clients and a lot of different farmers. And, and I guess you pick up little things as you go and you see what, you know, I started in the risk area, like I said, dealing with farmers that were facing financial difficulty. So you see what can go wrong. And then I, I led ANZ's corporate agribusiness for Victoria and Tasmania. And then I was state manager for South Australia and Northern Territory. So you see a lot of variety across there and you see what the good farmers are doing and you, you take a bit of that and you, like I said, I'd give some advice back to dad who'd say, put your money where your mouth is. And, and I guess in that corporate agribusiness space, you are dealing with some of the bigger growers and farmers and they are at the cutting edge of usually technology evolution and you're seeing what they're focusing on. And uh, I guess the efficiencies and some of the traditional farming methods aren't very efficient anymore. So you're seeing the, the technology and the evolution and I guess bringing that back to the farm. And you do have to have your finger on the pulse as far as the economics go. You can get very emotionally attached to agriculture and, and I guess that's what I bring back. I mean, my brother's been on the farm since he was 15 and he's not, you know, he's a very smart guy, but he's not an academic in terms of the financial or legal side of things, whereas I've been dealing in, in that side my whole life. So, and I think, you know, my pre-generations haven't got along. Like my dad didn't take over his family farm. He sort of was a bit stubborn and at 25 left with his life savings and bought his own farm. So he's done it the hard way but he's also done it quite traditionally and the economics really matter because, you know, we fight to save every dollar and, and make every dollar. So you've really got to be assessing the economics and we've trialled the last five years running a, you know, a Merino stud, you know, alongside our crossbreds. We've always been traditionally crossbred, but we wanted to see how the wool meat composite stacked up against the, the crossbred. We've also started to trade cattle over the last few years, which started as a result of 2019. People remember we got through to about August and then in our country up near between sort of a Chukin and Deniliquin, it dried off really harshly in August and we decided to go and buy a whole heap of cattle really cheap and put them on all the crops and then the price turned and they put on a lot of weight and they actually did quite well out of it. So that's how we got into the cattle trade. But, but I remember my folks being in Canada at the time and they saw that we'd cut everything for hay and we'd gone and bought all these cattle and my mum was like, geez, you boys have blown out the overdraft and I hope you know what you're doing. And I showed mum this spreadsheet of all the economics that we'd calculated in, in terms of if we took this to harvest or if we cut this for hay, or if we put cattle on here, and this is what we'd make versus if we did it the traditional way, I suppose. And mum went, geez, you better come back and, and run the farm. And I was like, no, nah, uh, this is too much uncertainty for me to sort of fathom, given you're relying on the weather. But that's, you know, that's what it takes, I think, just being able to do those economics, not trying not to get too emotionally attached. And you know, there's some tough decisions at the moment where the sheep job is versus the cattle job. You know, they're both, cattle seem to have bottomed out, sheep are, you'd hope are close to bottoming out, but yeah, there's a decision. If you can trade both, which one do you get into? And, you know, you do have to look at some economics on that and do some numbers and probably get some good advice on what sort of feed you've got and things like that. But you've got to weigh it up, especially, like I said, if you're fighting for every dollar, those decisions count. I'm going to stick with you here, Brandon, because so family farms, obviously there's lots of emotion attached to it. You're not in the farm, inside the farm gate every single day, but from my understanding, it seems like the decisions that you're making come with a lot of clout and objectiveness around them. So when it comes to engaging with your brother with the broader family, how do you guys actually approach 
making those decisions and having those conversations that could become quite emotive. Yeah, like I said, I mean, we stick in our lanes. Like my brother's pure production focus, so it's his job to grow the grain or, you know, grow the sheep or the cattle. It's my job to make sure the numbers are all stacking up. So to be honest, he's not a man of many words. So we probably speak once a day for two or three minutes and then we cut to the chase. There's no BS when we talk. It's pretty much, you know, are you sure we need to put that much fertilizer out there? And he'll say yes because of this. Or he might go, yeah, good point. I'll go and talk to the agronomist. But, and we respect each other's opinion at the end of the day. Like I said, he's there for production. I'm there to make sure I keep an eye on the numbers. And if it's a financial decision, he'll trust me. If it's a production decision, I'll trust him. And we challenge each other, but once the other person's had their say, we don't really challenge it further on because we stick in our lanes, and I think that's the beauty of our relationship. And are you guys using external advice in that as well? Uh, only agronomy, yeah. And obviously, we've got accountants, but they probably hate me because, you know, account, being a previous accountant and, you know, pushing them a bit and having studied a little bit of law, the lawyers probably hate me as well because, you know, you, you can sort of, you know where they need to be focusing and things like that and you push back on a few things, which probably the average person doesn't. They just take it for granted that, that that's the right advice and that sort of thing, but I do challenge them a lot. But yeah, I mean, we use all those sorts of, you know, advisors. And to be honest, your bank manager is a good point of call for some advice too, because they do genuinely see the numbers of a lot of farmers. So if you want to know what works, you know, if you want to go down a separate path and say, have you got any farmers that are, I guess in our instance at the moment, we don't summer crop, but we could summer crop now. So we go... Have you got any farmers growing maize and what's that look like and what, you know, what do the economics look like? Can you give us some examples? And yeah, they, they can't divulge personal information of their other farmers, but they can sort of tell you what sort of margins or whatever it is because they see the numbers. So yeah, lean on the right people for a bit of advice. And, and yeah, I mean, that's what we do. And for you, Mark, using externals, you guys, that, that stud dispersal, 2018, was it? 2017, yep. How did you use external advisors to actually guide your decision making and what did that process actually look like up until the point where you said, all right, it's sale day? That's a good question, actually. I think Ross Mill got a phone call and I said, Ross, I'm dispersing, correct? And you went, what? <laughs> Don't say it. <laughs> Probably Dick Whale was my genetic advisor anyway, but I mean, he was just as shocked as anyone else, I think. I think when we went down that road, probably the whole industry was quite staggered. I mean, what are you doing that for? You've got to this point and you're giving it up, but... We weren't giving it up. I'd been in other states. I'd watched the US cattle market go up and down, and we were flatlined. We were totally flatlined, $1.60, $1.80 a feed of steer for five or six years, and it was pretty bloody boring, I can tell you. But I'd watched the, the US go through the roof and then down and then back up again, and I came out in 2016, just before this, knowing that Australia was going to get some action for the first time in a long time, even to the extent I stood up at my... South Australian bull sale in 2016 and said, if we don't see a price rise, I think above $3, I'll quit. And we saw the price rise. It just went down before it went up. That was a bit of, but that wasn't the reason why I quit because I just, I had this knowledge from traveling around the world that I knew what was going to happen. It was our turn and it was short lived, but it was there. And so that was part of it that when I came back out of there, I thought we've got to take some of this action and in a bit bigger sense than a bull sale or just steer sales. So I'd come out of the US in 2016 thinking, let's liquidate some of the commercial herd. But then the conversation with family about who's going to do what 5, 10, 20 years changed that to the start. And so who are you using outside to guide that process? Maybe not who, how? How do you use them? I don't know if we really, Anna, we didn't really use a lot. We talked about it ourselves. I think it was a, a hard felt decision knowing once we had the conversation in family, that there was no one going to stand up 
they'll help me keep doing it, Anna and I keep doing it, but how long can we do that? Because it was a big job, 300 bulls a year, three sales. It was a big job. And how long can we keep doing that? Do we want to keep doing that? Yes, the boys will do it for a while, but if they're not really into that, is that fair on them? Is that really what you want them to enter agriculture and go, well, we're doing this for dad? And I didn't feel that was the right thing. So I don't think there was a lot of outside influence on that. I think it was just a decision. What's it like coming out the other side of that now? And obviously we won't talk too much about cattle prices, but no, what's it like coming outside going, you've got now both boys back in the business and still going through this evolution process again now for them? Firstly, coming out there, everyone wants to know what's it like not having a start anymore and what's it like not bringing. It's great. I don't have to worry about a client. I don't have to keep someone happy when it's going wrong. So that's really good. I mean, I don't regret any decision that we made. I'm not hanging a handbag on my boys and saying, you've got to do that. And just really interestingly, just step back to the previous generation, one of the things that happened to me that probably helped that decision was my grandfather was the great Corridale man. And before he died, one of the things he said to me is, this Corridale stud is your legacy. Don't stuff it up. You know, they, that's, they're pretty big words. And so you think about it. I didn't stuff it up. Evolution of agriculture stuffed it up. And, you know, I didn't want to hang that on the boys if they weren't really keen on that. So coming out the other side is really good. It's given Max has been farming since 2014 with us at Kalana. He started off more of a sheep man than a cattle man, although he's now looking at the economics of it going, or he was, <laughs> looking at it going, oh, maybe more cattle because of uh, the cost associated with sheep. But it's allowed them to get into the business, Ollie, and, or Max especially because he's been in the business longer, and modify the business to what he wants to do, and we've allowed that to happen. So coming out the other side is very pleasurable. And you touched on the word legacy there. I'm going to ask both you and Brendan a couple of questions which are going to be the same, but let's start with you. That piece of whether it was your grandfather but also the legacy that you are building through the family business, how important is it that you weigh up like the legacy of this is where we've come from but actually going, well, the world's changing and as a business for us to remain relevant, profitable, sustainable into the future, we need to actually change what we might have done in the past. I think we need to look at change every single day. I mean, agriculture is a moving business. It's not stagnant. I mean, you know, it's so broad. You could be a cropper, you could be a, a sheep grazer, you could be a cattle grazer, you're a stud man. It is very, very broad. And you've got to come down to the person that's in the game at the time and what is their specialty or what do they want their specialty to be. Legacies, to me, are dangerous a bit. You know, you hang the hat on someone and say, you have to do this and they don't want to do it. It's not going to work. So I think that's the whole thing about evolving of agriculture, isn't it? That whatever happens tomorrow, if you can adapt and move to go through with that without chasing fads. I mean, I've been down some fad farming. I've uh, grown chickpeas and sprayed them on Christmas Day and things like that. You know, you look over the fence and go, are they really doing it that well? Is it working for them before you make a radical change? And that was only a little one when we did it. But, you know, careful of fad farming, that does come and go. But mainstream agriculture does move a little bit. It's moving at the moment. Are cattle still going to be the top of the pops like they've been in the next five years? We don't know the answer to that. I think it's pretty good. But are sheep going to now be better? We'll wait and see. I mean, that might dictate someone's future thoughts. And what about for you, Brendan? You mentioned elders around since 1839. Working, you can answer it in two ways, I guess, the family farming side and also from the corporate side, but there's an extreme amount of legacy, but evolution's part of the businesses that you're involved in. How do you manage that? Yeah, I guess it's they're both similar. I mean, it's that evolution, sustainability. Yeah, I guess from a whenever you go into a leadership role, you always want to leave the place in a better 
position than where it was when you joined. I think with farming as well, you want to leave the farm in a better state than it was when you found it. So, I mean, we've bolted on a couple of farms over the journey and they've all been run down and let go, to be honest. And, and I guess one of the things my brother takes pride in is actually fixing that farm up through best farming practices and making it into a more sustainable operation, whether that's through developing agriculture or the pastures and things like that. You know, it's a shame to see the amount of farms around that have just been sort of let go, whether that's through inheritance and and then someone just not really caring that much. So I think, you know, and like Mark said, we don't know what the future holds or maybe your son or daughter don't want to take on the farm. So I think it's still just leaving the place in a better position than what it was. I think that's the key legacy you can leave and that's true in business or whether it's the farm. So, yeah, Elders has been around for 1839 trying to serve you know rural communities the best they can and that's what we continue to do and we try to look to, for ways to do that whether that's partnering with the right people to bring technologies or educating clients to have better pasture management or grow better crops so it's all of that and you know we had an agronomy conference at Horsham last week and a lot of that was just talking to you know talking to our agronomists about best practices and actually going out to see some farmers that are bringing on new technology and so it's all about that education piece as well so yeah it's just that evolution. I think I might have overcanned the word legacy, actually. There is a legacy. The legacy is probably the opportunity that you get out of being able to join agriculture. And within our succession conversation, we've dropped the word fair because fair is, in my mind, different to what it might be in someone else's, a brother or a sister. So we've dropped that and we now use the word fortunate. So I think the legacy is the opportunity. So before we throw, and I think there will be a microphone going around for some questions from the floor, maybe. Maybe it's over here. But I think, and, and you do a really nice conduit there, Mark, it's really well scripted. Now, the, the soft skills in agriculture, we don't talk a lot about, but using the words gratitude, fortunate, et cetera. But how do you guys ensure in your businesses that you create an environment to make sure that people are heard and have the opportunity to have that space to actually express themselves and, and be part of the conversation for the decisions which ultimately do affect them? Well, that's going to take a bit of thought. We as a family try to have regular meetings where everyone can sit down and have some input, or we were. Why I say were is because we've just split the business into two with our children. So now, as from the 1st of July this year, we're running two businesses, basically in the line of succession. We're lucky enough to do that. Anna and I went out and bought some country in South Australia in 06 and 2011 to be able to give opportunity to our children, which was given to me and my brother. And then since then, in 2020, I think it was, we bought Fernley, which is just out near Glen Thompson, to be able to give opportunity. Now, we've loaded them up for debt. We've given them something to think about, and they've got to work hard for a long time, but, but they're aware of that. But I think it's all about communication. It's about a plan and communication. If you have that, you actually can move somewhere in agriculture or anywhere in life. If you don't have those things, well, you're not going very well. That's certainly a good motivator, isn't it? Gets you out of bed every morning. Yeah, I think... I mean, for us, I guess, oh, well, if I look at the family farm side of things, I like it. All of my siblings are grateful for the opportunity that we've been provided through our parents. And we've seen, like I said, dad sort of went off on his own at 25 and bought his farm. And, you know, you see the struggles like, you know, shearing his own sheep and, you know, the old ways of farming. It was a lot of very hands-on and you sort of see the, the blood, sweat and tears that goes into it to be able to afford to send your kids to university and, and that sort of thing. So I guess in my family, everyone's very fortunate for for what's been provided. And I, I think when it came back to the succession planning part, I think everyone's just got to be realistic that the person who takes on the most risk should get the most reward. So my brother who's gone back to the farm since uh, leaving school. He's the one that's taken on the risk. He's the one that's been through all the droughts and things like that. So it only made sense to make sure he did get the, the biggest reward in that, you know, the, in the breakup for the succession planning. And, and yeah, I think 
everyone else is is accepting of that and it's yeah I see there's no one size fits all for succession planning because everyone's got a you know certain set of circumstances and it's different and some families are probably more rational than others and and things like that but I think you know everyone's just got to have that perspective that if you do put too much debt into a business that can be the killer to succession planning you've just got to start early and I think you've just got to bring people along on the journey and but like I said you've just got to be cognizant that usually there's someone in the family that takes on more risk than everyone else and those people that are sort of off farm you know shouldn't be the ones really dictating terms really I mean but you've also got to I guess the challenge is giving mum and dad the retirement that they deserve as well because if you did try and buy mum and dad out for face value then you're probably going to be loaded way too far up with debt and nothing's going to be sustainable. So it does start with a long plan. Like we've probably been going, you know, it's probably eight years into it now. We haven't, we're certainly nowhere close to finished it, but it's just going on that journey, everyone having clarity. Perfect. Now, any questions from the floor for Mark or Brendan? It's a great conversation. Thanks to the three of you. Question for you, Mark. With all due respect, so uh, don't take it too deeply, but um, often when talking to growers, Ask them about what are the things that keep them awake at night with regard to problems they're trying to solve for on the farm and think of ways that we can help. Actually, I was awake sleeping about thinking about this last night. <laughs> what keeps me awake at night? I actually sleep pretty well, funnily enough. Seasons keep you awake, to be honest, and things that are in front of you. But I don't really have a lot of trouble sleeping mostly, so I'm probably not the one to ask. When I was in the bull sales thing, to be honest, that kept me awake. That was, that was such a big deal trying to get a client to come and all those things that went with it, trying to get your book work done, all that recording, performance recording. And, it, you know, as I asked before, what don't I miss about uh, stud work is the amount of work that it loaded up. And I admire all those that are in it because it's a tremendous amount of work. But they're the sort of things that keep me awake. I mean, probably at the moment you're thinking about the markets, the markets ahead, and that's where you can help us. But, I mean, that's with some outlooks, but we all know that's not that easy. I mean, we're pretty lucky the way we're serviced by the business that we're related to, and Elders is one of them. You know, Aidan Lanyon does a great job. Ross was doing a great job when, when he was there in the stud bit. You know, our bank's good. We communicate with our bank. We communicate about what interest rates are going to do. You know, this whole succession thing we've done with them, we've had open conversations about how it's going to work and how it's going to land. I think if you're lucky enough to be able to communicate and talk, you get around that a lot, and I'm fairly good at that. Other questions? I think if we add to that one, I mean, obviously good weather forecasting would help all farmers. I mean, if you, we, look, we can see in our business at Elders the impact that the early prediction on our Nino and dry sort of autumn winter had in people's decision making. And then obviously we had a really wet June and everyone's sort of blaming the bomb and the bombs come under a lot of scrutiny. You, you just think if we could actually get that bit right and have better forecasting for farmers, it would make decision making a lot better. And you'd like to think that we're, we can, you know, things can improve in that area, I think. So can I challenge you on that as well now? <laughs> Controllables are things you can control versus can't control. For many people in the room, they're not going to have any input over weather forecasting that the Bureau can do. So in their business specifically or with the support services, what could they do or lean on? Oh, I think what this year's actually shown is it's rewarding the producers that stick to their program. Those that take canola, for example, those that pulled out and said, well, it's the dry outlook, we're not going to plant canola. So then all of a sudden, Elders gets left with a lot of canola seed that was pre-ordered. And then because the price dropped and it looked dry, but now the, you know, the, the season's actually been okay in a lot of areas and the price is seemingly going back up. So it rewards those that stick to their program. So I think that's, you know, you set a program two or three years out and you stick to it and you, you've got to absorb the weather events and for the things that keep you up at night, Roy, and I was saying to the guys before that 
you know, I got a call probably six weeks out from harvest last year from my brother when it just wouldn't stop raining. He said, we're completely stuffed. We're going to get completely washed out and we won't have a crop this year. So that was a pretty sleepless night. But then you start to think, well, what do we do? If that, if that is the case, what do we do next? And I think you've always just got to keep thinking forward. If it does rain, we can do this. If it doesn't rain, we're going to do that. And you've just got to have some backup plans. I mean, that's why the traditional mixed farming, cropping and sheep and cropping and cattle has always worked so well for farmers and is probably the least risky way forward because your crop fails, you can rely on your stock. If your stock job's no good like the moment, the cropping job's quite good. So having that diversity is key. Thank you. Yeah, I had a question here. Sorry. I guess for Mark, you know, you, you go from being in the driver's seat for a long period of time with Anna and then you've got to get out of the driver's seat, get into the passenger or the back seat or get out of the car altogether. How do you and Anna, I guess, process that and what's your new purpose or role as your next phase? I jokingly say that I started a jackaroo and now I'm back to senior jackaroo and that's my age. We've still got a very big purpose in the business. We've got a big bit or two businesses, but two big businesses that have got quite a few people in them that need management and that sort of thing. We still, on a day-to-day basis, have impact on the farm. And it's got to the stage, it's, it's probably more of what we want to do mostly. Or for me, maybe not Anna. Anna gets the phone call, Mum, have you got five minutes that turns into five hours? <laughs> I think we've sort of worked so hard too, we're taking a bit of pleasure time. And that might only be one day a week that we didn't take before, but we are spending a bit more time off farm and that'll grow as time goes. We've got a few outside programs, projects going on. We're building a house at Port Ferry. We've just moved one that's going to Dunkeld. So we've got other things that we like doing. I love using my hands, woodwork and things like that. There's plenty of things we can do, but there's still a farm has got such a variety of things you can do. Yard building, fixing stuff, you know, I've got a little excavator that's 29 tonne that we've got all these cypress trees that have died from uh, the bacteria. I mean, that is the greatest therapy. Five hours in that punch-up cypress trees is just awesome fun. So offering a contracting service there, are you? Oh, no way. I've got enough to do. We've got 13 miles of the damn things that my grandfather planted and they're all dying. Any other questions? Um, yeah, I've just got a quick question from Mark. So you spoke about your trips over to North America and that influence it had on you. How important do you think it is for other farmers to do those trips internationally or even just get off the farm to pro- progress their own careers or to educate themselves? That is really important. The more you can see about what someone else is doing, good or bad for that, broadens your experience and your horizons. I mean, I was very lucky because I've had lots of roles in my, in my farming life. I was chairman of the ASBA at a young age, which is the Australian Sheep Breeders Association that used to run the um, sheep show in Melbourne. I was given, handed that role when the thing was broken, was the big driver for moving it to Bendigo, which has now made it a great event. Off farm, I've been involved in Angus politics. I was chairman of, or president of Angus Australia, board of CAAB, all things that took me off and looked at other things. I was on AgLive, the board of AgLive that Ollie was employed by, which was a tech company, because I've had this tech interest all my life. Probably the most beneficial was probably the US. I'm very lucky that Anna's English. I've been, I've been in England and Scotland and places like that on farms for the last 38 years, and, and that's broadened my horizon. But if you can get off farm, and that's one thing that elders could do is help people get off farm, get them off into other businesses, do bus trips, things like that, that take people off on a little tour, together where they're getting, you know, interaction with like-minded people and go and see what other people are doing. Go and see how someone else is doing it. Really, really valuable. I'd rate it right up there. 
I was going to just while we, if there's another question coming, but for you, Brendan, that the benefit of going from Price Waterhouse, ANZ, obviously into Elders, how different but similar, and what are the learnings you've had from jumping around actually in those different businesses, different structures, etc. Yeah, like I said before, I mean, it's just taking those little bits of knowledge with you. And yeah, it's just like I said, particularly with succession planning, I mean, a lot of it's around structuring and you've really got to be careful. There's so many booby traps. I mean, there's tax planning, stamp duty. So when you're probably sitting around the kitchen table as a kid, we had so many counsellors come and talk about succession planning, but nothing ever eventuated. There's a lot of numbers on the whiteboard, but kind of a so what at the end of it. But you really need to get to the nitty gritty around you know, when was the asset purchased? Is it, you know, what's, is it pre-CGT or post-CGT? What's the capital gains impact on that? If you're changing names, what's the stamp duty? Like, so you don't, last thing you want to end up is a huge amount of cost in the business from making all these papers. But again, with the proper planning, you can work towards all that sort of stuff. So I guess it's along the way, just picking up little things like that. And, you know, I see where those sort of traps are and you can get caught out. I think that's the, probably the, the main thing. And just watching, I don't know, like, economic patterns whether it's the markets and things like that and we seem to have short-term memories we're talking about the cycle before like obviously the we're in a bit of a rough cycle at the moment as far as sheep and cattle prices go but it's not going to be down here forever like we're probably ignorant to think prices were going to stay as high as they were for for any longer because they were actually quite high for quite a long time and if you actually think about the cycle they're not going to be down here forever either so you've just got to pinch yourself and go well this is only a point in time and things will get better or if you're at the top you go well that's like, for example, we didn't trade cattle last year. Just the price scared us. We just went, well, we don't want to trade because if we pick this wrong, then you know, we might not make anything. So whereas this year we're going, actually, it's at a price where we can actually trade. Like, that's the beauty of where the prices are at the moment. You should be thinking, if you've got a buy mentality or you can buy, I mean, not, not everyone can because they might already, have, might already have too many stock on their property, but if you're in a position to trade, it's actually quite good at the moment. So, Thank you. Any more questions? Noisy crowd. I might just touch on one thing, Ollie. I don't want to offend anyone in the crowd, but to Mark's point before, I think what he's talking about the next stage of life when he's handed over to the sons, but I think it's actually really important, both for the senior people in the room, but the younger people, when mum or dad sort of hand over, the worst thing to do is to have nothing to do. Like you've actually got to think of projects. Like for dad, it's been the fencing project and still being able to go around sheep and buying him a boat and things like that. You've actually got to keep it. You got a boat? Mark's got a boat. So I think if you, you know, people will go crazy otherwise. So you've just got to keep thinking about, I guess for the senior people, it's what do I do next? If I do step back, what can I do to keep myself busy? And for the younger generation is how can I actually respect mum and dad, keep them involved in a way that keeps them active and motivated and things to do. So like I said, we're continually going, like if you know, dad might do something silly or say something silly, it's only because we haven't thought forward and giving him something productive to do. So, you know, we sit back and go, all right, time to buy some more fencing equipment and give Dad a bit more of a bit of a job to do or something like that. But that's actually a really important part of succession planning, I think. That step change in the next stage, whether it's coming in as the farm manager owner or actually passing it on as well. Yeah, because you can imagine, I mean, running the – and Mike, you'll talk better this, but running the place for such a long time and then all of a sudden having no say over the key decisions, I imagine it's quite daunting from your side of things to make sure, geez, I hope they don't stuff it up. You do have that in the background, but you put in your process some things that help in that. I mean, we're still very involved financially with our children and, and are part of that planning process. I think the greatest thing is having employed quite a lot of people through my life, I don't have to front up at 7.30 in the morning and think about what they've all got to do. That's Max's problem. You know, I can front up a bit, and I don't want to do that either because I don't want to be there interfering. And that's very important that the older generation don't interfere with what's going on. 
But you talk about it every day. You know what they're doing. You know what the farm's doing. You know how it's working. You know where you can fit in and do what you want to or not what you want to. And uh, if you don't want to, you go fishing once a day a week or something like that, which I, I do. But it is. It, that is it. It's about we all need to be busy, each and every one of us, and we find our spot. And I've found my spot or we're finding our spot, I suppose. You know, we've gone to the extent we've traded houses. We've done the whole lot. And, but that's part of the process. It's part of succession. It's part of letting go of the reins and going, well, it's, it's your turn. And then, but it is, an, it is an evolving thing. It doesn't happen overnight. My succession with my family, my father, didn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, it's not that long ago Dad was still doing the books. I didn't like doing the books, but he started making some mistakes and then eventually we pulled it away and Anna started doing it. And uh, that was part of the evolution of that. And then now our daughter-in-law is doing the books on their side of the business, probably earlier than what we got the chance to, but that's part of evolution. You've got to look ahead and go, what is the best for the business? And we think that's the best for the business. Keep them involved. People want a lot more. We, we probably sat back and were told what to do back in that day a bit more than today, I think, whereas now they're hungry for information. They're hungry to go and do it. They want to have a go. I get that. I think that's great. You've got to let it happen. And so a question for each of you with where you're at, different stages. What are you excited and optimistic about looking at, I guess, the outlook for Aussie agriculture and why you're involved going forwards? Oh, just look where we've just come from. Top of the pops, best markets we've ever seen. You know, I know it's come off now, but I've been there before. And the first 15 years of agriculture when I got into it, when I left um, Glen Ormiston in 1983, it's just savage. We didn't make any money. Our interest rates went up right to, you've all heard it, 17.5%. I think the first loan I ever fixed was 125 I fixed that for five years. And then we fixed all our South Australian stuff at the start at 75 And we were happy with that because, you know, we'd done our numbers. We knew we could pay it. But look where it's just come from to where it is now and, and get used to the interest rates. They're not going back where they were. That's, that's something that happened in the past, I think. But agricultural is a very exciting space. The tech in ag, the everything you can do, I mean, it is just really exciting. There's some daunting things coming, you know, carbon and all that stuff, the cost of labour or being about being able to, to find labour, but that'll all fix itself in time. We'll pick some tech up to do this and something else to do that. We're adaptive and uh, I think it's a great spot. I think it's a ripping spot and the outlook, even though we're on a flat mark at the moment, the outlook for feeding the world is really, really good. It's funny, even though there's yeah, a bit of a gap between us, I think it's almost the identical response. I think the way Mark put it was, was perfect, really. I mean, the, the opportunities ahead, the technology, the ability to use data to drive better decision-making, there's so much ahead of us. It's, that's the exciting part. And with what's happening around the world in terms of you know, the climate and having what's all, and even the geopolitical risk over with Russia and Ukraine and things like that, like we are a very fortunate country and we have got the ability to produce a lot of products. So we're in a good space and we've got the ability to, to produce a lot of food for the world. At the end of the day, everyone's got to eat. So I think that's, you know, whatever happens in the economy or thereabouts, you know, it's still a great sector to be in. And I think, like I said, if we can continue to evolve and, and really capture that data and the efficiencies that we could gain in the future, that's the exciting part. Perfect. Well, thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Mark, for your time this afternoon. Thanks, everyone, for coming along. Can we just round of applause? Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts. And, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, rate, subscribe, review it, 
any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.